Well, brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. And a very happy Easter on this holy day. Kinfolk, let us pray. Glorious resurrected Savior, you are our guide and our destination. I pray that you make of us an Easter people once more. Amen. There's an impulse amongst American Christians, especially to worship uh, anything other than God and to then call that thing God. We have a great deal of civil religion in this country and we worship a lot of different things. And this is Easter Sunday. This is the one Sunday when we're supposed to speak plainly about where our faith actually lies. But I think a lot of this is driven by the desire to take away any obligations that we may have to change the way that we live. In our church, we took Lent very seriously this year. We did our very best. No one's perfect, but we sought to make changes in our lives. But in American culture, we try to accommodate the things that make us comfortable. And we think that if we can maybe transform our relationship with God into a light switch that we can flip on and off, um, then it can be once and done and we can go on living however it was that we were living before. American Christianity's got this in spades. Our American Christians, um, sometime right around the end of the 19th century, created an idea about Easter that goes something like this. Um, that this was the story that they said. God was very angry at humankind because of sin. And the only thing that would satisfy God's anger uh, was a sinless human sacrifice. And it needed to be sinless. So he sent his son to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And now that the price is paid, God is satisfied. God won't condemn the world. Except here it gets a little bit fuzzy because if that's what you believe, then the price is paid and you don't get to have an in-group and an out-group. So they added on to it in the 1930s and 40s. You, you also have to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior in order to get into this deal or your toast, literally. So, there's a very special pray, prayer that you have, to, you have to pray it a very special way. Sinner's prayer. Um, well, they get fuzzy on what this means for people who can't pray this prayer or who have disabilities or little kids or people who've never heard about Jesus. Um, they're after that eternal fire insurance. Uh, but it's about satisfying God's anger with a blood sacrifice. And the, the word for this is penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, theory of atonement that's predicated on courts, legal ideas. It's a modern idea, um, but I think it came out of the American Civil War. I, I don't think that any of us can truly understand the, the, the horror of that historic event. Uh, and it was appealing. It was an appealing idea. This idea that you could somehow, with violence, pay for a sin, a crime. Um, the flip side is that all you need to do to be a Christian is just be grateful that God isn't angry at you anymore. And, and you get high in the sky when you die. Um, the problem with this is that it doesn't 
line up with anything in the Bible. Any theology uh, of Easter or idea of salvation that uh, the cross and death of Jesus Christ that begins with the doctrine of retribution instead of mercy is going to be flawed. Um, it would seem, now it seems perfectly natural to describe to God all of the petty grudges and vengeful frustrations that occupy the minds of human beings. The ancient Greeks did this. They invented whole gods around human feelings. Um, but if you engage with the Bible and you follow the way of Jesus and you endeavor to learn who God is and who God says you are, you've got to immediately abandon the idea that God somehow desires a sinless sacrifice on the cross of Calvary to pay the price for your personal sins. If God was so angry that he required the sinless sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, in order to pay the debts for your sins, there's no reason for the Gospels to exist. I mean, not beyond the first two chapters of Matthew, Jesus could have very easily been killed by King Herod as a baby, uh, innocent baby in Bethlehem during the massacre of the innocents. And God's wrath would have been fulfilled. The price would have been paid. And if this wasn't enough, any competent attorney will tell you that the idea of an innocent person taking the punishment in place of a guilty person is, is it's gobbledygook. It's nonsense. You can't do that. You can't walk into any courtroom in America, look at some accused criminal on the stand and say, Judge, I, I'm gonna, I know he did it, but I'm going to serve his sentence for him. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, they might lock you up for trying anyway, but it's not going to get him out of his punishment. Um, you'd probably get a free ride in a, in a car with flashing lights to a special part of the hospital and <laughs> lock you up overnight. God didn't put on flesh and live with us in order to suffer and die to get us into heaven. We don't practice a religion built around human sacrifice. There's this story of Abraham and Isaac. God is trying to explain how Adonai, Elohim, how this force, this creator is different from all of the other gods that they're worshiping in that part of the world. The other gods require sacrifice, human sacrifice even, child sacrifice even, to appease their wrath. Abraham lifts the blade to Isaac and God sends angels and says, no, that's over. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. And the idea that substitutionary atonement is somehow what God desires also spoils Easter Sunday because it puts the victory on Friday instead of Sunday. After Jesus dies on the cross, if then the debt is paid in full, then that's it. That's the end. Jesus is dead. We can all go home and be grateful. <laughs> but that's terrible because Friday is not a day of victory. It's a day of defeat. Saturday is a day of profound sadness and weariness that it appears that the world won again. The victory is on Sunday morning. The cross is a defeat. It's the loss of a people who thought that God was coming to earth to defeat Caesar's army. But he didn't come to defeat Caesar's army. He came to defeat death itself. 
That's the impossible longed for victory that we've been pining for since we evolved the ability to speak or write or sing or communicate. Release us. Release us from death. The prophet Isaiah says, now this is Isaiah singing a very ancient song about the very ancient desires of some of the first humans that that lived. And he says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. That mountain is the end, the summit, it's the final destination, and there's gonna be a celebration. And who is it for, Isaiah, who is it for? Well, it's for, you know, Reformed American Protestant Christians. Maybe it's for Baptists. Congregationalists. No, he says it's a prayer for all. It's a prayer and a feast for all people. All people. What about the Muslims? All people. What about Democrats? My neighbors with the dog that barks all day. No, all peoples. All peoples, God doesn't stutter. And Isaiah says, he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. This glorious moment, what is God going to destroy? What is the shroud that is cast over all peoples? What is it that all peoples share in common? It says, Isaiah says in the very next verse, he says, God will swallow up death forever. God will swallow up death forever. That's what the first Christians understood to have happened on that Easter Sunday. That is what Paul discovered on the road to Damascus. That's the ancient meaning of Easter. Not that somebody would come and die uh, to pay some blood price on our behalf, but that God would die in order to enter into death and defeat death forever. Forever. How could a God die? Well, how can the creator of the heavens and the earth die? Well, that's what it means for God to share in our burden. That's what it means for God to put on flesh in Jesus Christ. Death. Use a scientific term for it. Entropy. Atrophy. The the eventual heat death of the universe. Call it what you want. But it is at that final moment that there is a creator that stands having defeated death. And death seems to say to us, I am death and all of this will someday belong to me. And your God, your creator, can't do anything to stop me. But yet God acts. God finds this most terrifying intersection of human identity. A homeless child, an infant, conceived out of wedlock to a teenage girl in the backwaters of the most precious fascist empire the world has ever known. Mother Mary, under Caesar, then becomes an infant and lives a life of teaching, poetry, song, the will of God. And at the last, takes upon himself the wrath of that empire, the wrath of Rome. Rome, which says, like death, I will eventually own everything. That's what every empire claims. And then by entering into that death, he becomes the last death, the final death, the omega 
of death. He is the beginning, and in dying, he is the end. That is what has happened in the harrowing of death. God says, yes, you will die, but that is all that you will ever do for death. Because I am there, waiting for you. The hope is not lying dead on a Roman cross, but in the empty tomb and the risen Savior. That's the mountaintop where God destroys the shroud that hangs upon all people. Easter is a celebration of God taking sides, of God taking death off of the table, and everything that follows after is the kingdom of God. You take away the threat of death, and Rome loses its teeth. All of the empires of the world lose their fangs. The heart is at liberty to live into a life of abundance instead of a life of scarcity and fear. So, beloved brothers and sisters, it is as simple as this. Easter is the day when we celebrate the end of death. And we're an Easter people. So we're a people of joy and hope. We're a very strange group of people who look out at the condition of the world, who look out at all of reality and say, tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday. That's who we are called to be. And how could we ever harbor hatred or animosity when we know that in the last, on God's holy mountain, all people gather in celebration? This is the promise of God, that we may die, but that death holds no power or authority over us. None of us, never again, never again, because we've been set free by the power of Jesus Christ, our liberator. The last death has passed, and the day dawns with hope renewed. This is the revelation, kinfolk. God has included you, named you a beloved child. You are an inheritor in this victory, and death has lost its sting forever and ever. Amen.